0: Well, welcome home. I'm just so delighted that you're here to join us both in person and online. And before we begin today, we are going to be in the book of Joshua. We're continuing our journey through this book because it's a great place to ask the question, what do we do in times that are so uncertain as the ones we're facing now? And my favorite line is at the very beginning when God is talking to Joshua and he says, now look, when we're ready to move into the promised land, I want you to get behind the ark and follow me because you've never been this way before. And so in that spirit, let us go with God into prayer and just invite him into this time and this space. Lord Jesus, as we have gathered here now, we know that you have something prepared for each one of us. God, as we continue this journey through this incredible book, uh, it's the story of you interacting with your people. And so, Father, may these stories become more than just stories. May they become a point in which we can not only touch history, but we can touch you. And that we can have hope as we walk into this world and into the steps that we take each day, knowing that we have a God who walks both with us and behind us and in front of us. So God, would you come now and reveal your word to us that we might become people of your presence, changed, having known and experienced our God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So go ahead, if you have your Bibles, I want you to flip to Joshua chapter 9. If you have a phone or something, go ahead and connect on that way. Uh, But we're going to be walking through this particular two chapters, and I'm going to point out some interesting pieces that I think have some significant relevance into how we're living our lives today. And so before we go any farther, though, let me just give you a quick little history piece because this is important as we set up what's happening here. Joshua has just led the Israelites across the Jordan. They have tackled two great armies. They've taken out the city of Jericho and the city of Ai, And now they have just renewed their covenant with God and they're getting ready to enter into the deeper parts of the promised land. And what Joshua is going to do is lead the Israelites right smack dab through the middle of the promised land. Now, if you are going into an area where you have lots of turmoil and cities around you that want to see you and your people wiped from the face of the earth, going to the center is probably one of the most dangerous places you can go. But what Joshua's really doing is he's fulfilling this covenant, this promise God made not only to Abraham, but to Moses saying, look, as you follow me and I become your God and you become my people, I'm going to lead you not only into my presence, but into this promised land where I'm going to make you a people and a nation. And so as we jump back in time here, I just want to point out what's happening as they're entering into this new promised land. It's called the area of Canaan, and that's a term we use to signify all the different people groups that live in this area. But the Canaanites are a very specific people group that we hear about throughout the Bible. In fact, we first hear about them in Genesis. And so I want to go to that history point because this helps us to answer the question, why is God seeking to create war against the Canaanites? And so let's check this out. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 25 and 27, 10, 15 through 20, here's a summarization of it. The curse of Canaan uh, preceded in Genesis is now coming into fruition in the God's judgment on the cities of Canaan. Gibeon is one of the cities that we're going to see next, and it's the city of the Hittites, which is a specific group of people. And they are now under the threat of God's judgment. God pronounced judgment against this group of people because as he was moving and calling his people out from the world, the Canaanites have a very specific way in which how they live life. They live it very unruly. They serve whatever God or purpose they want. If they want good crops, they might sacrifice one of their children to get good crops. Or they might call together a giant orgy in hopes that that might summon whatever it is they're trying to connect with. They use a lot of witchcraft, and they're not afraid to use and abuse people in slave labor. And they become a people group that is known as the detestable ones before God. And so God constantly warns his people, don't associate with this group that you might pick up their ways. God is very much concerned that the Israelites mimic his nature and character. And so this becomes very important. Well, later in Exodus chapter 3 and so on, we're going to find that uh, God's judgment on these people of Canaan, and at least seven times in the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, Moses lists the Canaanite cities under the threat of God's judgment. In fact, the list of peoples found in Joshua 9, chapters 1 and 2, where we're going to begin today, repeats those that are found in Exodus and Deuteronomy. The reasons why the Gibeonites deceive Israel is because of the judgment threatened by Yahweh, our God, a credible threat confirmed by the word of God. So what's happening here is God has constantly been saying, hey, I'm gonna lead you into the promised land and those that do not come under our rule and come together in our nation, we're gonna wipe out. And it sounds awful when we think about it in our mindset today that we have a God that's supposedly this God of love who's gonna be moving forward and wiping out certain people groups. But what he's really doing is God is coming in and he's asking these people groups to join and be a part of him. To recognize him as the one true God and to put aside their witchcraft, their false gods, uh, their sacrifice, their abusive people. And to recognize him and then to recognize what it is to truly be human. And so what God is doing is he's saying, look, we have given them nothing but mercy all this time. They know Longer want to be a part of it. They want to oppose me, and so I'm going to show you what happens when you oppose the God of the universe. And so let's begin our time here at the very beginning of Joshua chapter 9, and these are the verses that set us up for where we're headed today. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland along the coast of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Pezerites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites, When they heard of this, when they heard of Joshua and the Israelites making their way across the Jordan miraculously, wiping out the city of Jericho and taking out the city of Ai, which is a very enormous city, they begin to get very concerned. And so they gather together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. And so what they're saying is, look, we've heard of the great things God has done in Egypt and now coming into this area. And we recognize that he is something of great authority and power. But you know what? we're bigger and better than god and so we're going to do what we want how we want so what you're going to see next is this interesting uh correlation or or better yet a way in which we're kind of looking at how things sort of line up a compare and contrast if you will between these five armies or these five cities and one particular city that stands alone and what happens here is really fascinating because this sets us up again for what god is trying to show his people so You just heard about the five armies. Now check out this sixth city. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they, on their part, acted with cunning. And they went out and they made ready provisions, and they took worn-out sacks for their donkeys, wineskins, worn-out torn uh, sandals and clothing, worn-out and patched... uh, Sandals for their feet, worn out clothes, and all the provisions that were dry and crumbly with their bread. And so, what they're doing is they're looking at Joshua and they're saying, Joshua's coming over our way. All these other kings are scared to death and they're starting to form together armies. But you know what? We've seen and heard the stories. We don't want to stand in the way of this God. And so, we are going to go and make a covenant with his people. But we have a problem. You see, we're neighbors. And we know that part of that original covenant God made with Moses and the Israelites is that they would come in and they would take over these lands. So we are going to be people of that wrath. So let's deceive the Israelites. We're going to look like we're coming from really far, far, far away. And as we make our way to the Israelites, we'll, we'll begin to coerce them into a relationship so that we can be spared and, and we can become a part of their community and their tribe. And that's exactly what they're trying to do. So let's look at this compare and contrast. You've got the the five armies on top. They hear Israel was coming and they're fearful. And the result is war with God and his people. But the Gibeonites, they take a different stance. They hear Israel is coming. They're also fearful, but they begin to lay down their swords, shields, and they make a plan to seek peace with Israel. Later on in the chapter 10, you're going to hear about how the Gibeonites are really a fierce, warring tribe. And so they probably could hold their own in a battle, but they're choosing to lay that down and become a part of the Israelites and God's, God's family. So let's take a look at this. The Israelites begin to come in contact with these Gibbonites, and the Gibeonites are saying, look at, see the, the holes in my pants and my shoes, and look at the wineskins we fixed. Look at the bread we brought from home and how it's all moldy and crusty. I mean, we have come a really long, long way. And so they begin looking at these things and they say, well, that's really interesting. Um, but you know what? Instead of asking God if we should or should not do this, let's just, let's just make a covenant with them. Let's just let them in. You know what? We trust your story. It looks like everything checks out. We're going to judge this book by its cover and we're just going to move forward. And so Joshua makes a treaty of peace or a covenant with this particular group. They let them live and the leaders of the assembly ratify it by oath. So now they're in a covenant together, band with Israel God. And God. So this is going to be what's interesting about it. Three days after they make this treaty with the Gibbonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them, 15 miles away. And so can you just imagine, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where what you did, you thought was the right thing. And then as you made that decision and you stepped into it, you found out that this may not have been the best idea. That's probably not the greatest example, but I'm going to give you a silly one that just happened yesterday to me. I try to take each one of my kids on a date at least once a month, and a date could be anything. We can go to the park. Sometimes we go out and get a meal together, or we see a movie or something, but I take each kid one by one. We have three children. Last night was Courtney, our youngest, turn. So she says, Dad, I really want to go out to dinner with you. I, I want to have a, a really fun date. Let's get all dressed up and do this. Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? So I get dressed up, and she comes out, and she has now got her hair, and she has poured glitter all over it. Her sister has helped her put on the brightest pink lipstick I think I've ever seen. Um, she had red stuff on her cheeks that I think was supposed to be blush. Uh, she had her beautiful little sundress on, and she was so ready to go. So we go out on a, a date, and I take her to Olive Garden. That's one of her favorite places. and. We, we have our meal, and then as we're coming home, I, I'm just thinking about how fun this was. We got to converse and have a conversation. I got to hear all about what it's like being in third grade and kind of where her heart is right now. And as we're driving home, it begins to rain. And I said, honey, look, it's starting to rain. And she goes, yep, that means the windows have to be up. And I said, yeah, they do. And she goes, yep, so when I fart, you're going to suffer. <laughs> Sweetest little eight-year-old you ever met. And all I could think of is, oh my God, you're your mother. Sometimes these situations happen where it sounds like it's a really good idea, and then it turns out that maybe it's not. But three days after they make this treaty, this is what's happening. But I want to show you a little bit of the history here that jumps in the middle so we don't miss out again on, on what's happening. The history is that in Deuteronomy 20, it lists the differing rules that Israel's to, to be a part of as they enter into this promised land. They, they need to really think about these things, and this is really important. Anyone who lives far away from Israel, who seeks peace with God's people, should be spared from the sword, and they should be allowed to make a covenant. But those near to Israel, whose practices of idolatry would lead God's people astray, are commanded to, to be destroyed and pushed away from Israel. God is saying, look, you be holy as I am holy, and you follow my rules, and you're a part of my covenant. I don't want you to fall and be, become a part of these other groups because they're going to lead you away from me. And so God puts this out there, but the Israelites ignore it in this covenant, and they make a covenant with a group that's 15 miles away. And this is going to be very problematic. So now the Israelites begin to figure this out, and they begin to get angry. And so Now that they're so angry that they've been deceived, the entire community of the Israelites starts pushing against their leaders. And they're saying, wait a minute. Didn't Moses say we shouldn't make friends with our neighbors? And you made a covenant and you didn't even seek God? So you know what? Let's go down there and we're going to straighten this out. And we're going to start cleaning some clocks. And so all the Israelite elders begin pushing back against the community and saying, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. We've given this group our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we cannot touch them now. This is what we will do to them. We'll let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. And this is really interesting because now we're going to tie into this piece. This idea of Moses... Well, let me stop there for a second. So as they, they make this, co- this group, they're saying, look, we got to be men of our word or men and women of our word. We, we made a covenant before God and now... We have to just live by it. And so sometimes when we make decisions in this world, or we sign a contract, or we make an oath, and the person then tries to cheat us in it, this is an opportunity for us to still stand firm in our faith and say, well, even though you may not have great character, that's not going to change my character. Uh, Just because you don't have great faith, that's not going to negatively impact my faith. I'm going to hold fast. And so the Israelite elders begin pushing back and saying, no, we're going to hold fast because the covenant isn't about the people. It's about us and God. And how we treat these people is going to be directly how we treat God. You know, Jesus will talk about that in the New Testament, that how you and I treat others is exactly how we treat God. Because all human beings are children of the living God. And so I think this is a fascinating concept to to be reminded of just how important it is that even when people try to, to deceive and cheat, we have to remain true to what we signed up for or what we promised or what we're stepping into. Because it's about our covenant with God and our character and the world is watching. Now, jumping back into history, we've got this Deuteronomy 29 that gives instructions for foreigners brought in as servants to Israel in the context of Moses' covenant renewal with Israel. So, in other words, as Israel begins bringing in foreigners into their community, there's some specific rules and regulations that Moses says these are things you should do. So, Moses assigns a place for all soldiers to chop wood and haul water. The passage explains that when Joshua assigns the Gibeonites to chopping wood and hauling water from Gibeon, where there was a prominent well, he's fulfilling the word of Moses and explaining the covenant relationship between Israel and the Gibeonites. So what happens next is Joshua summons all the Gibeonites together, and he's watching between the Israelite elders and the Israelite community and the Gibeonites, and, and there's going to be a war here if he doesn't help kind of get in the middle and say, I've got to help settle this. So he says, here's the defining factor. Why did you deceive us by saying we live far from you? Well, actually, you live near us. Remember, 15 miles away. You're now under a curse. You'll never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. And so what he does is he sets them up as slaves. Again, this sounds absolutely crazy, but you're going to see an interesting piece in history and how this all connects. But what Joshua's ultimately doing is, is he's recognizing that even though these people tried to deceive their way into their community, they still sought God. And even though they may not have done it the right way, they found their way into the community of God. And guess what? Not only is Joshua going to honor it, but God's going to honor it. So let's see what happens next. History to consider. Genesis 34 recounts the last time Israelites and the Hittites met. The Hittites are the Gibeonites. So they actually met before many, many years ago, way back in the book of Genesis. And I think this is fascinating because this story is going to help us better understand the character and nature of God and how he is always a God of grace and doesn't go back on his word or break his character. So here's what happens. Interestingly, there was a number of connections between Genesis 34 and Joshua 9. Some of these connections include similarities in covenant making, deception, and curses turned into blessings. So let me share just a couple of those real quick. So we jump back into Genesis 34. We're going to meet a man named Shem. Shem is the son of Hamor, who is a Hittite. Now he ends up raping a lady named Diana, who's the daughter of Jacob. Jacob is going to become the family that becomes the Israelites. Remember, God will give Jacob that new name. And so from the very beginning, their first experience is this rape. Is how the two communities come together. When Shem expresses his longing for this girl, and he goes to the father saying, how can we make this up, and how can we end up being married and try to make it right? Hammer uh, decides to, he tries to make a covenant with Jacob. And so, the deal is, Jacob, you, you're going to give us your daughter, and my son's going to marry her. I know he did her wrong, but let's make this right, and you're going to become a part of our people. So, no longer will you be the Israelites, you're going to be the Hittites. Now, if they make this covenant, that would be a direct reflection of not trusting that God had a purpose for the Israelites. That he would fulfill that promise he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would continue to make them into a great nation of people. So if they make this covenant with the Hittites, it would just destroy their whole faith and understanding of what God is trying to do in their lives. So they don't. However, there's a little bit of of retaliation that's going to happen next. And so the next thing we're going to read about is the two sons of Israel, Levi and Simeon, who go in to deceive the Hittites. And what they do is they come in and they say, look, I heard the covenant you wanted to give uh, Jacob. Let's enter into that. So here's how it goes. We will covenant with you and we'll become your people and you'll become our people. So you have to circumcise yourselves because that's what we were taught as Israelites. So if you do that, we can be in covenant together. And they convince all the Hittites to do that. Well, on the third day, as these men are healing from the procedure, they sneak into their camp and they wipe them out. Now, the thought process here is, if we wipe out the Hittites, After they've done this, then the covenant has ended in death. And therefore, there will be no covenant with Israel and Hittites. And so we got them back for what they did to this girl. Do you see the treachery here? Now, there's a major problem other than the immorality behind it. But it's that these are people who represent the nation of God or God's family. And God doesn't want to put up with that. So the next thing that happens in Genesis is those two are called out by God and God says you are no longer a part of this community You're going to wander for the rest of your lives And we watch as these two no longer are a part of God's family because God does not condone this kind of behavior Remember he's holy and asks us to be holy Now what's fascinating though is what happens at the end of it God allows them to come back in an interesting way as God begins to create this tribe of Levites out of that man, Levi. He's going to take his family and he's going to bring them in and they're going to become the Levitical priests that watch over God in the tabernacle and then eventually the temple. And they're going to be the ones who serve God on a first basis, meaning they are the ones who go between all of the the community of Israel and God. So what I love about this is God takes something that looks so terrible and he takes these people that did wrong and he says, I can't condone that. I'm going to push you out of the community, but I'm not going to destroy you forever. I'm going to allow your family to come and have its rightful place and not just any place in the community, but a place in my presence as priests. And so we're seeing the redemptive power of God here. This is really important because this is going to jump us back into Joshua in just a second because something similar is occurring with these people in Gibeon. Because of their deceit, they're now cursed, right? Joshua said, I'm going to curse you, you're going to be slaves, water gatherers and woodcutters. However, what's going to end up happening is they're going to serve the temple or the ark of God. And so just like what happened with the Levites, where they did something wrong, but God brought them back in and brought them close to him. In their repentance he's going to take the gibbonites and he's going to move them into his presence so that they're not just slaves but they become servants of god so they now are serving god in the community and we're talking about an intimate relationship and i want you to see this because this is the story of god and his mercy if i were to try to describe joshua 9 and 10 in a word i would use the word mercy that God is really uniting his people together. And those that want to be a part of the family, he has mercy for. And he brings them in and makes a way. But not just any way. They don't sit in the back of the cheap seats. He brings them to the very front in this intimate covenant relationship. And that's exactly what's happening here. Now, this is really important because what happens next is going to be an example of not only how God fulfills that, but how he's going to use Joshua. So the next scene now in chapter 10 is what happens. Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, begins to appear to the the other other four uh, towns, and he's going to say, guys, look, you heard about the Gibeonites and how they've left us now to join the Israelites. We need to band together, or those Israelites are going to wipe us from the face of the earth. So here's what we're going to do. Let's go up and stomp on the Gibeonites first, and then we'll go over and take out Israel. Are you with me? And that's what this king is exactly trying to do. He's trying to pull everyone together to do just that. Here's the battle plan. It's kind of an interesting map, but if you look off to your right, you've got Gilgal and Jericho. That is where the Israelites are. If you look in the middle, you've got Gibeon. That's where the Gibeonites are. And then below them are all these kings, and it shows the red on their way up to attack. Now, what I love about this is the Gibeonites hear about this, and, of course, they rush over to Joshua, and they're like, hey, Joshua, now look, we're about to get our clocks cleaned by these five armies. Remember the covenant you made with us? You better defend us. And so Joshua says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. But this is what's really cool. As he's thinking about it, the Lord begins to speak to Joshua. And he says, do not be afraid of them, those five armies that are coming. I've given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. So now all of a sudden, God, who they didn't consult when they made the covenant with them at the beginning, is now saying, because you made this covenant, and because you're people of, of character, and because you're holy as I am holy... I'm going to honor you in that covenant. So now I will fight on behalf of the Gibeonites and you, and I will protect you both. This is what's so incredible to me when I think about our personal relationship with God made through Jesus Christ, that you and I have been adopted in just like the Gibeonites have been adopted into the Israelites, and that God now fights for you and me just like he fights for the Israelites. And so we have a God who wants to protect us and walk before us, behind us, and with us. So no matter what we're challenged with in this world, we now have a God who will fulfill that covenant and be our God and protector. And that's exactly what's happening here. So I love what happens next because this part is really exciting, especially when you have a 13 year old son. He thinks this is the coolest part and I want to share it with you. As the groups begin to flee. Now I want to tell you what's happening at night. The Israelites get this word from God. and They begin marching all night and they end up Arriving in the morning heading off all five armies as they show up to battle the Gibeonites And as they show up here's what happens As the army sees the Israelites and they begin to flee and they begin to split kind of into two groups And so the Gibeonites are going to go after one the Israelites are going to go after the other And as they flee before Israel on the road down to Bethhoram to Azekah In other words, they're all going back home to where they're from The Lord begins hurling large hailstones down on them And more of them died from the hailstones than that were killed by the sword of the Israelites. It's interesting that those words are captured in the scripture. But again, I want to show you that God is fighting on behalf of the Israelites and the Gibeonites. That God is fulfilling that covenant. And so when we think about that covenant with God, it's his to lose. And he is not going to lose. He's holding fast. And so he begins raining down huge ice balls in the middle of the desert. And it begins wiping out these armies. But the miracle doesn't stop there. On that day, the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel. And Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you the moon over the valley of Aijalon. And so he begins asking God to stop the sun from moving through the sky. So the sun begins to stand still, and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies as it is written in the book of Jeshar, that's a Hebrew book of poetry and history that's capturing this moment, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down for an entire day, so there was enough time for this battle to be completed. Now, it's kind of interesting. Here's an artist's rendition of what that might have looked like, but what I want you to capture is this bigger idea of how this would have looked to all the neighboring nations that are now going to hear of this story. Of these five powerful kings that came to attack the Gibeonites in Israel and how they were destroyed by their own arrogance and how the Gibeonites who decided to humble themselves and seek a relationship with God and the people of God are spared and they now come into the community of God now to top things off there's this amazing event where the Sun stops and is held still in the sky with the moon now we might see that as something like this an eclipse in a very unique eclipse. In fact, they've been studying this, and I found this article that I thought was so interesting. This came out in 2017, and it's a study done by Cambridge College where researchers announced Monday that they had pinpointed the date of the biblical account of Joshua where the sun stopped, which they claim is the day of the oldest eclipse ever recorded, October 30th, 1207 BCE, exactly 3,224 years ago. In a paper published in the Royal Astronomical Society Journal, Astronomy and Geoph- Geophysics, excuse me, research ex- explained that they were consequently also able to re- refine the dates of the reigns of two Egyptian pharaohs at that era, Ramesses the Great and his son, uh, Maraneph, and what's interesting about that, Ramesses is the one that we see with Moses in his experience. So what's happening is as they're studying this, they're saying, wow, some amazing celestial event happened. And we're not entirely sure what it is, but it makes sense to think of it like an eclipse where everything stood still. And it was a unique eclipse where it looked like a ring of fire, where the moon is stopped in the middle of the sun, but it held there for a whole day so that people would remember it thousands of years later. Now, if you're one of those neighboring communities like the Canaanites who believe so strongly in witchcraft and in, in seeking people and omens and, and sorcerers, and all of a sudden you hear that the God of the Israelites stopped the sun and the moon in their tracks, guess what? It would be another one of those opportunities to say, hey, there's something unique about this God that triumphs anything we've ever seen in our gods. We're dealing with the God of the universe. When these experiences happen, these are opportunities where God is calling the world to take notice and saying, do you understand how great I am? Do you understand that I'm a God who makes promises and keeps those promises? The people that I have called my people are the the vehicle in which I'm using to invite the entire world to come and know me. And this is just a glimpse of what's coming next, which we're going to find in the New Testament, which is that promised Messiah, his son, Jesus. And so when we look at Moses and we look at Joshua as these great saviors, then we look at him moving in this direction and how God's plan from the beginning was to redeem the entire world through his son Jesus by inviting you and I and everyone else into relationship. That when we would hear these stories or experience these events, we would say, wow, this is a mighty God who is worthy to be known and worthy to be praised. And that's the significance of these two chapters. Now, I want to ponder a couple points as we come to a close here, and, and let's look at this. By, motivated by this genuine fear of God and a belief in, in God's word, we find that the, the Gibeonites model what it takes to find refuge or seek refuge in God. Through their deception, even though they're exemplary, their boldness in seeking God models the kind of boldness of faith that it produced. And so even though they may have gone about it in a funny way, they still found Jesus. Some of you may have funny stories where you were doing something that maybe you're not the most proud of, but somehow out of that experience or event, you came to know Jesus. And the God of the universe revealed himself to you. The idea here is that we're looking at this, this concept of how God is, is worthy to be pursued at all costs. And even though the, the Gibeonites come at it in a goofy way, their heart and their passion and their faith seems to blow through we see this in example as we jump into the New Testament when Jesus is doing this miraculous healing in a particular house and, and the crowds form outside in such a number that people can't get in but there's these four devoted friends who have a fifth friend who's laying on a mat and he's an invalid and he can't move and they end up climbing up to the top of the house and breaking through the roof and lowering him into the house now I don't think Jesus would ever say let's destroy stuff in order to experience what God is doing but What Jesus says in that moment is look at the faith of these individuals that they're willing to do the most craziest thing In order to get their friend in my presence to heal In other words, God sees your sacrifice and your desire to know him and he honors it Just like he did the Gibeonites and just like he did that man on the stretcher And because of their service to the lord at the tabernacle the Gibeonites now live as the centerpiece of Israel's unity and worship. In other words, by grace, those initially outside the covenant of God are now brought near to God and in the very middle of the community of God. Don't you love how God doesn't say, hey, yeah, I'd love you to join my group, but can you kind of wait in the back while I hang out with all my homies and my close people? Our God doesn't do that. What he does is he sees the person in the back and he says, hey, hey, come, come on up here. Guys, move aside, move aside, come, come, come here. And he, and he brings them in close. And we have a God who wants that intimate relationship with each and every person. Which is the whole point of why we put a church in the mall in the first place was so that we could invite people into that experience so that they would not just know about, but they would know and experience the living God through Jesus Christ. This is exactly the scriptures that help point us in that direction. Let's look at another point to ponder. How about the men of Israel? They remind us how self-reliance leads to bad decisions. You know, sometimes we think we've got it all figured out and we look at our life experience and our skill, how we might have had things go before, and we go, oh, you know what? I I bet it's just going to be the same way. I'm just going to kind of trust it. Instead of really going to God, and so they trusted their own ability to examine the outward appearance instead of entrusting themselves to God. The result is a covenant relationship that goes against God's laws. And so they end up breaking This trust with God on one end, but God is big enough to say, look, I make covenants and I don't break them. So if you invited those people in, then let me show you my grace. It'll be more than enough to cover. So the idea here is that sometimes you and I...